We come now to the preaching of God's Word, and so I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 1 Peter, chapter 1. I'll be reading and preaching this morning on verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied you. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time together in your word this morning, and we would ask now for the work, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and our teacher. He'd help us to understand these words from Peter this morning. Help us to set the stage, as it were, for a study in the weeks to come from this glorious epistle. So we ask now that the Spirit of God would do that work that only he can do. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. This morning, brethren, we are embarking as a congregation on a new verse-by-verse -verse study through the letter of First Peter. And I have chosen this letter because it focuses on two themes that I believe that we as a congregation will be blessed and helped by considering. And these themes are the greatness of our redemption in Christ, the greatness of our redemption in Christ, and the greatness of God's grace, which sustains us and keeps us even in the midst of suffering. And we'll be hearing much about these themes over the coming weeks and months as we seek by the power of the Holy Spirit to be established and well-grounded in them. However, my purpose today, beloved, is to provide a brief introduction to this letter by first addressing two critical questions. These questions are, who wrote this letter? And who was his intended audience? For while these questions may seem to be very basic, even elementary, they must be asked this morning, and they must be answered adequately before we can fully and truly grasp the meaning and the full significance of what is being conveyed in this letter. For not only is this letter a product of divine inspiration, a word from God that must be received as such, but it is also a product of human authorship. A product of human authorship. For God used a man to write this letter for the benefit of his people. In fact, this letter did not descend from heaven on a rope for us, but it was written by a human being, by a fallen and a restored human being at that. 
So there is a humanness about this letter and about the one who wrote this letter that we must truly endeavor to understand. And of course, the same goes for the intended audience of this letter. For this letter was not written to the elect angels of God who have never left the service of God. But it is written to those who were once separated from God, according to 1 Peter 2 and verse 10. Written to those who were previously not a people with any sense of spiritual identity and mission, but who the, through the divine mercy of God actually became a people through Jesus Christ. So to properly understand this letter, to spiritually and intellectually gain from it, we must first endeavor to know its writer, its author, and its intended audience beyond a mere superficial level. So let us begin this morning by focusing on the, the author of this letter, who simply identifies himself here in verse 1 as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And of course, brethren, if we have any knowledge of the New Testament at all, if we have any knowledge of who the first disciples of Jesus Christ were, then we know who this Peter was. And most likely, depending on what we've been taught and what aspect of Peter's life we have heard the most about, we may have different initial thoughts when we first encounter his name here in verse 1 of this letter. For when some encounter the name of Peter here, they immediately think of Peter as that disciple who denied Jesus Christ three times. And without question, the man who wrote this letter is the same man who denied Christ repeatedly. And yet, it is significant for us to note this morning that Peter does not identify himself in that way here in verse 1. He does not say Peter who denied the Lord repeatedly. He does not write Peter the one who denied Christ. And I would submit to you this morning that the reason that Peter does not identify himself in that way is that Peter had learned as a mature Christian, not to view himself through his past. Not to view himself through his past or through his sinful failures, which were many, but through God's grace, through God's gracious calling upon his life. For while Peter never denied his past, he was not defined by his past either. Brethren, let me just say that we should not, not deny our pasts as well, but we are not defined ultimately as God's people by what we did in the past. But rather being confident that God had forgiven him of his past and commissioned him to preach the gospel for the establishment of the church, Peter chose instead to identify himself in verse 1 of chapter one by his calling, by his calling. For Peter had been chosen to be an apostle, chosen to be a sent one. That's what an apostle is, one who is sent out in Christ's service. 
and Peter rejoiced in, Peter did not hesitate to identify himself by his calling from God. Also, while we're on the topic of Peter's apostleship, let us note also that Peter does not identify himself here in verse 1 as the head apostle or the chief apostle or the pope. Or despite the claim of Roman Catholics who have an un- a misunderstanding of Peter's role in the early church, Peter did not claim such a role for himself. Not here or in any other place where Peter writes in the New Testament. Rather, Peter simply identifies himself as an apostle. As an apostle. Surely, if Peter had learned anything through his failures in the past, it was not to boast in his own strength or to think for a moment that he was something that he was not. However, my primary purpose here this morning is not to expound on the nature of Peter's apostleship, but to help us to see instead why Peter, of all the apostles, was uniquely qualified through his own experiences and through God's personal dealings with him to address the themes of grace that richly unfold through this letter. Peter was a disciple of Christ who was profoundly affected by God's grace. He was profoundly affected by grace in three areas of his life. Let me just mention these briefly. He was profoundly affected by grace and his spiritual transformation from being impulsive and self-willed to becoming submissive to the will of God. Secondly, he was profoundly affected by divine grace in his restoration by grace to service after his fall, after his denial of Christ. And then thirdly, he was profoundly affected by grace in his realization of what Christ had called him to do as a shepherd of God's flock. And this morning, I I want to comment briefly on each of these aspects of Peter's Christian experience under grace and how the lessons that Peter learned in these areas surface again and again throughout this epistle and serve as godly instruction to us as God's people as well. So having said this, let me briefly show how Peter's experience in these areas surface and instruct us throughout the letter of 1 Peter, beginning with Peter's own transformation from being impulsive and self-willed to being submissive to the Lord Jesus Christ. For as you know, brethren, there is a great deal of evidence that is presented throughout the four gospel narratives that Peter was by temperament very impulsive and self-willed. In fact, there were many times when Peter impulsively spoke out in the gospels about a matter that he should have listened to someone else instead. On one occasion, upon hearing Jesus say that he had to go to Jerusalem and be killed and three days later rise again, Peter actually took Jesus aside 
and began to rebuke Jesus, only to be rebuked by Jesus in return. Remember the words that our Lord Jesus gave to Peter on that occasion? Can you imagine someone saying this to you? Jesus saying to Peter in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 23, Get behind me, Satan. Thus, throughout our Lord's gracious dealings with Peter, he was constantly and wisely confronting Peter's impulsiveness. And Jesus revealed to Peter that even he, Jesus, had to submit to the Father's will. And ultimately, Peter had to learn that he could not prevent Jesus from going to the cross that had been appointed for Jesus. Furthermore, Peter had to learn the harmful extent of his own impulsiveness to speak before he should and the reality of his own selfishness when he repeatedly denied Christ and responded as one who was only concerned with saving his own skin. For all of this happened to Peter as a part of God's most wise and holy plan for him. And in confronting Peter with his frequent impulsiveness and his profound selfishness, Christ was being gracious to Peter. For through the mighty power of that grace, Christ was transforming Peter. And I might add, and I'll say this again and again through this series, through the power of that grace, Christ is transforming us. Preparing Peter for that time in the providence of God when Peter would write, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. And Peter, as a far less impulsive and far more mature Christian, would write to God's people about what? About the need to be submissive to God's will at all times, and even during times of waiting and suffering. In fact, one of the major themes of the letter of First Peter and We'll see this more as we go through this letter verse by verse, is our need for submission to God. For as sinfully impulsive people, and we are sinfully impulsive people, people who want their way when they want it, we often grow impatient with God. We grow weary of the slow and meticulous way that God's purposes and benefits unfold in our lives. And you and I need to be told by one who had his impulsiveness and selfishness rebuked by Jesus Christ and who had to learn the hard way, true submission, how we should joyfully submit to the will of God in our lives knowing that God is testing our faith as he did Peter's on many, many occasions. In fact, there is an entire section in this letter, and namely verses 13 through 25 of 1 Peter chapter 2. I will not turn there and read it because this message is a little longer than usual today, but I encourage you to look at that section, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25 where Peter addresses our need as Christians to submit to the will of God in every aspect of our lives and how we are to be known not by our impulsive demands, not by our self-will, but by our obedience as gracious and submissive people. 
as those who walk as Christ walked, submitting to the will of God and not striking back at those who oppose us. For we know that whatever God brings our way, even if it comes to us in the form of suffering, is according to God's own wise and holy providence for us. I know we believe that, but we need to be reminded of that. So when we get to chapter 2 of this letter, we will find a deep spiritual maturity in Peter's words that would not have come from young, immature Peter back in the four Gospels. For the younger Peter had dared to question Christ's wisdom in going to the cross. But now here in 1 Peter, Peter not only commends the obedience of Christ in going to the cross and quietly submitting to the will of God the Father, but Peter also commands you and I to follow in his steps. To live in submission to God and to his leading, no matter what the cost may be. So as we consider in the weeks ahead Peter's own teaching on being submissive to God and our need to turn from our impulsiveness and selfishness to quiet obedience to God instead, let us remember that Peter, who wrote this letter, was well qualified to teach us on these matters, for he learned what submission truly is. I said it before, and I'll say it again now. He learned it the hard way, and many of us do. God was gracious, but it wasn't easy. There are things that we will learn about submission to God from this letter that you and I truly need to grow in. Then secondly, beloved, with respect to Peter's restoration by grace to service after his denial of Jesus Christ, Peter writes some things in this letter that remind us that he knew firsthand what it is to fall. He knew firsthand what it is to be overtaken in a fault and yet to be restored to service. For those whom Christ has chosen, though they may indeed stumble, are never abandoned. And when Peter fell, Christ sought him out again. And Christ brought Peter back to his spiritual senses through a line of questioning designed to rekindle his love for Christ. You remember how Peter was restored. Christ repeatedly asked Peter, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Christ redirected Peter for service with the stirring words, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. And of course, the letter of 1 Peter is, in all actuality, a testimony to Peter's restoration by grace, although this letter was written many years after the events described in John chapter 21. In fact, the very first chapter of 1 Peter, which we'll be examining soon, Lord willing, bears the mark of a writer who was filled with the joy of his salvation. A man who blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has shown great mercy 
who has caused his people to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 3. He is a writer who speaks of the believer's great love for Jesus Christ. Where he writes to his readers here in verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him. Our love for Christ is a central theme in this book. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For clearly in these words, and in other words written throughout this letter, Peter speaks to his immediate audience. Peter speaks to you and I this morning as one whose love for Christ was not only rekindled, but greatly strengthened. So there's hope this morning for us if we need our love for Christ rekindled. If we need our love for Christ greatly strengthened. And no doubt all of us can benefit from a letter from one who has learned from experience and even from his failures how much he needed Christ and how much he loved Christ. And we'll see how much Peter loved Christ in this letter. And we'll be challenged as we work our way through this letter to love Christ more and more as Peter learned to do as one whom Christ sought and restored. Not only this, but there is wisdom and counsel from Peter in this letter that if followed will keep us from stumbling and will help us to stand firm and confident in God's sustaining grace. For certainly Peter wrote out of his own experience and out of the wisdom he had gained through grace when he penned these words from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6-10. through 10. Let me just read these words again, but I want you to turn there. I just want you to hear them. We will go through them verse by verse at the appointed time. But consider these words from Peter. For Peter wrote in these verses, 1 Peter 5, verses 6-10, through 10, Humble yourselves, therefore, spoken by one who learned humility, by the way. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. How do you know he cares for us, Peter? Because Peter says he cares for you. Being sober-minded, be watchful. For your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings that are being experienced by your brotherhood are being experienced by you. And after you have suffered for a while, the grace of God, or the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you to him, Peter says, be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Therefore, brethren, what we also find here in this letter of 1 Peter is wise counsel from one who gravely underestimated the spiritual threat posed by his adversary, the devil, but who later learned to stand fast and to be firm and confident in God's sustaining grace. Then, then lastly, with respect to 
Peter's realization by divine grace of what service God had called him to, we see, and we will see here in 1 Peter, that Peter did obey Christ's command back in John 21, 17 to feed his sheep. Peter obeyed Christ's command. For not only did Peter go on to minister through preaching, which we can read all about in the book of Acts. In fact, as we're preaching through the book of 1 Peter, you might want to spend some time looking at the ministry of Peter in the book of Acts as well. But Peter also wrote this letter to Christ's sheep as well. In fact, this letter is clear evidence that Peter took Christ's command very seriously. It is evidence that God indeed filled his promise or fulfilled his promise to use Peter again to shepherd and feed his sheep. For as we read and study this letter, God will be using Peter's words as a shepherd. Along with Peter's experiences and what God revealed to Peter as a Christian and as an apostle. And as we hear the words of this letter preached in the weeks and in the months to come, we, we should recognize what this letter is. This letter is spiritual food. Spiritual food written by one who was moved upon and instructed by the Spirit to feed spiritual sheep, which is what we all are. Not only does this letter testify to the fact that God called and equipped Peter to feed his people, but it also testifies to the fact that Christ, by divine grace, brought Peter to the realization of what his own giftedness was. Christ brought Peter to the realization of what his own giftedness was. In fact, this is an important and often overlooked theme in 1 Peter that we'll consider in the weeks ahead. For Peter's realization of what he had been called to do greatly influenced the message of this letter. And it should influence how you and I receive this letter as well. What is God calling us to do through this letter? Now, what was Peter called to do? Well, he was called to be an elder and a shepherd of God's flock. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, I'll read it. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And in his service, Peter modeled these words. And what are we as God's people called to do? Did you know that you and I, as God's people, are also called to do something else? That we are called to know how God has gifted us to use those gifts to the glory of God. Peter declares in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, let me just read them to you. As each of us, as each believer has received a gift, 
We are to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so clearly there is in the message of First Peter, Peter's insistence that as a shepherd, he's not only responsible for leading and feeding God's people, but he has a duty to urge God's people to urge you and I to use our own giftedness as well. To use our giftedness as stewards of God's varied grace. And Lord willing, we'll consider this last theme in more detail in the weeks ahead. Because what Peter realized about his calling before God and under grace has some bearing on the discovery of our own callings and service to Christ, which we'll see in this letter. So these are some observations that stand out about the author of this letter, the Apostle Peter, which should pique our interest in hearing this letter preached. And I hope it does pique your interest. Now, brethren, having considered who the author of this book is, how he was prepared and used by God to write it, let's consider today who the intended recipients of this letter were and what you and I, as God's people, have in common with them. Was this letter simply written to first-century Christians with no application to us? Or do we have things in common with them? Peter identifies his intended audience here in the rest of verse 1. They are those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And by addressing his intended readers in this manner here in verse 1, Peter reveals several things about them that we should note very quickly. First, Peter reveals here that his letter was written to believers, to those who were chosen by God for salvation by grace alone. And of course, we know this because Peter refers to them here in this passage as those who are elect, as those whom God placed his love upon even before these persons knew about God and his love. And here in this context, the elect being addressed by Peter are, are not Jews only, but rather most interpreters of this book believe that they are Gentile believers. For just as the Jews of old were called the elect, those who were chosen by God to be his possession, so here in 1 Peter chapter 1, God calls these Gentiles, Peter calls these Gentiles, whom God has savingly chosen for salvation, his elect as well. For in God's sovereign purpose, the Father is bringing together into one people, both Jews and Gentiles. That church, as we'll see in a moment, was even in Peter's day, spreading throughout all of Asia Minor. Of course, the church of Jesus Christ continues to spread even within our own day as God continues to sovereignly call his elect from all places in his own time. 
And so what the Apostle Peter writes here was not intended for Jewish believers only, although there is some clear Old Testament imagery here, but rather Peter is writing to all of the elect of God who are represented here by those saints dispersed or scattered throughout Asia Minor in Peter's own day. Of course, this is why we can interpret this book as being written for us today as well, because you and I who are believers are by grace alone God's elect people. We are God's chosen ones, and we receive Peter's teaching as an apostle as applying to our time and our lives as well. Then secondly, Peter refers to his intended readers here in verse 1 as exiles. Notice that, exiles. Or as this word is translated in other Bible translations as strangers or pilgrims or sojourners. Where the idea here is that although these believers were dispersed by God throughout different providences in Asia Minor, they were by no means permanent citizens here on this earth. But rather their true home, their true citizenship as the saints of God was in heaven instead, where Christ is now seated on the right hand of God. And so by addressing his intended readers here as exiles, Peter was not only speaking of where they belonged, to another kingdom and to a greater king, but he's also speaking here to the way that his readers and that you and I also are to live in this world. How are we to live? Well, we are to live knowing first that wherever God has dispersed us, whether it be throughout Asia Minor or whether it be here in Bonham, Texas, we are here by God's divine appointment. We should not feel as though we have been cast into some foreign land or into some spiritual desert apart from God's sovereign plan. In fact, when Peter refers to his intended readers here in verse 1 of Peter chapter 1 as exiles of the dispersion of Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, he's not speaking to these believers as though they were persons to be pitied. When you read here that they're exiles, you shouldn't pity them. But rather they were simply of that group of people who are without their permanent home at this time. They are of that dispersion which God himself superintends and scatters. But they are exactly where God in his most wise and holy providence would have them to be, just as you and I are here by God's sovereign design for our lives. And yet while we labor here, knowing that God has placed us where we are now for his own good pleasure, we must keep in mind that this is not our real or our ultimate home, nor is this our final destination. But rather, as believers in Jesus Christ, as the elect of God, you and I belong to a far greater country, and we are looking for a far greater city whose builder and maker is Almighty God. And we have pledged our allegiance to our God. 
We have fixed our sights on that glorious city as that place where with Christ as our Lord, we will eternally dwell. In fact, there is a sense in which we already see ourselves there. Would you agree that you can already see yourself there? We already feel ourselves by faith to be citizens of that city. But for now, dear brethren, you and I are exiles. We are exiles. We, we are strangers. We, we are pilgrims. We are sojourners upon this earth. And as such, we, we now travel and we now labor and we now wait. Knowing that God is in control, knowing that our election by God the Father is certain, knowing that our, elect, our exile will not end poorly, but it will end with our salvation being fully revealed in the last time. How do we know, brethren, that our salvation is certain, that our spiritual progress in the faith will continue on? How do we know that our relationship with our God will never be in jeopardy, even as we struggle and persevere in this earthly journey or pilgrimage that we've been called to? Our brethren, we must, we can be most certain of these things, not because we are wise enough to choose God, not because we have any inherent strength, or because we have any natural ability to obey, but because our glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have already secured our salvation for us. We've already secured our salvation for us. And by doing so, God has ensured that his grace and mercy will be multiplied to us again and again and again and again as his people. In fact, the Apostle Peter, continuing now in verse 2, speaks of our salvation as being nothing less than a series of works. Note my language carefully. A series of works performed by the triune God by the triune God on our behalf. And these works, as we can see here at the beginning of verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 1, began with the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge of God the Father. And by this reference to the foreknowledge of the Father here, the Apostle Peter is not saying that the Father merely foreknew who would choose him that he simply left the final choice up to them because to portray God in such a way would be to make God an onlooker of our choices and not the one who chooses us, not to mention the fact that it would make God's choice as to whether to bestow salvation upon us entirely contingent upon our choice first, and we know that can't be the case. But rather, Peter states here in verse 2 that our salvation as elect exiles or pilgrims is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Peter is saying that God intentionally set his love upon us first. For in Scripture, to be foreknown is to be foreloved, foreloved beforehand. And in setting his love upon us first, the Father foreordained that we would belong to him. For our salvation, beloved, finds its beginning not in our affections for God. Not in our affections for God, but in his great love for us. 
and in the fact that in due time God sent the Son of His love that we might know and that we might experience, brethren, that so great salvation, which is according to His foreknowledge, His foreloving foreordination that is founded upon His love. In fact, it was not Peter here in 1 Peter 1 who revealed the extent and the purpose of God's foreordaining love, but the Apostle John elsewhere in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 wrote, In this love, not that we loved him first, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, to be a wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sin. Therefore, our confidence in the certainty of our salvation is not founded upon whether we love God first, which we clearly did not, nor is it predicated on the strength of our love for him, since salvation has never been about our love to begin with, but rather it has always been about the everlasting nature of God's great love for us, and how that love, which has existed from all eternity, was fully expressed to us through Jesus Christ. And then second, not only is our salvation founded upon the rock-solid certainty of God's foreordaining love, but our progress in grace, our progressive growth and genuine holiness is under the all-pervasive influence and powerful control of the Holy Spirit of God, who is now actively in the process of sanctifying us wholly, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Peter writes here in verse 2 also that we now proceed, we now press on as exiles, as sojourners in the sanctification of the Spirit. For as we progress through a land that is not our own, while we are looking for a future city that we already own, the Holy Spirit is constantly at work in us, whether we are consciously acknowledging the extent to which he is present or not. God is always present. And although his ways often are imperceptible to our outside senses, the Holy Spirit is presently transforming us by those means that are best suited for our spiritual progress and growth. In fact, one commentator on the work of the Spirit wrote these words. I think these are fascinating words. Hear them very carefully. He said, The unseen and unheard activities of the Holy Spirit surround God's people, inhabiting the very atmosphere in which they live and breathe. The Spirit turns every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool for His patient, sanctifying work. And surely this is the case with each believer. This explains why we need to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, why we need to be patient as His purposes and His inward dealings within each of us quietly proceed and progressively unfold where the Holy Spirit of God is engaged in a mighty work within us, even this morning, that is not to be measured by our time. He is not being driven or moved by our sense of urgency or by our impatience, 
but rather the Spirit works sovereignly in us at His own pace. At His own pace. According to His own divine blueprint. His goal, His design is not our immediate glorification, nor does He dwell within us merely to give us relief when we plead for it, because oftentimes His purposes are exactly the opposite of what we plead for. Sometimes God delays what we want. Sometimes he prescribes personal suffering for us as a far better means of furthering his sanctifying work within us. His purpose is not tied to the maintenance of our immediate comfort, but it is tied directly to his even greater work of making us holy, of conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, whatever the circumstances are that we are facing, Whatever the path immediately before us holds, let us be assured of this, that the same love that sought us out and called us to Christ will not let us go. The same grace that saves us and conforms us will sanctify us wholly and entirely at the day of Christ's coming. And then lastly, with respect to God the Son, as we consider, again, the work of the entire Trinity, we see that the Father's purpose in setting His electing love upon us and the Spirit's purpose in working sovereignly within us is directed not only towards our obedience to Jesus Christ, but to the assurance that our forgiveness has been procured by Christ's sacrifice for us. Peter speaks here at the end of verse 2 of God working in us obedience to Jesus Christ. Notice that. How do we obey? Through the Spirit's work in us. It is the Spirit of God who is working obedience to Christ in us through and for the sprinkling of His blood. Both of these are spiritual benefits that we receive from God because of the work of Jesus Christ, not because of something that we have earned or something that we have accomplished through our own ability or our own faithfulness to God. For when it comes to our obedience, which should always be directed to Jesus, we are only able to obey because of what Christ has done. For in obtaining salvation for us through his death, Christ freed us from the power of sin. Christ gave us, through the sending of the Spirit, the ability to render obedience to him. And of course, in seeing this, there is there's great encouragement for us. For if our obedience were dependent merely upon our own energy, upon our own resolve, our, our own ability to be perfect, we would certainly fail. But when we consider what Christ has already done for us, in obeying the law of God for us perfectly, and by ensuring our justification before God the Father, and by sending us the Holy Spirit of obedience, we can now truly rejoice. For now we can sincerely obey Christ Christ. From the heart. Now we can sincerely obey Christ by the power of the Spirit, and this should bring us tremendous joy. Then, along with this, we've also received through Christ's obedience a, a great spiritual assurance based upon the shedding of His blood. And of course, in saying this, Peter is not implying here that there remains a continual shedding of blood by Christ for sins today. But rather what Peter is saying here is that as we think about our own obedience and how imperfect it truly is, we should not be discouraged. We 
should not be depressed. We should not be tempted to fear God's displeasure or punishment, but rather we should cheer ourselves with the spiritual assurance that we have already been covered by the shedding of his blood. That our paschal lamb, Jesus Christ, purchased our eternal deliverance from guilt and the penalty of sin, and that nevermore will you and I, as God's chosen and redeemed people, ever be under condemnation. Needless to say, this is a good thing. This is a blessed thing for us as spiritual pilgrims and sojourners to know. It helps us to know, yes, it's very encouraging to know that as we travel this pilgrim pathway, our relationship with God will never be in jeopardy because it's been secured by the blood of our covenant head, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by his own sacrifice has secured for us all the indescribable blessings of redemption. Yes, it's no wonder that the apostle ends his greeting here in verse 2 of First Peter 1 with these words, May grace and peace be multiplied you. For those who live out their earthly sojourn with great joy, those who see their time on earth as an opportunity to grow, those who live each day with the confidence that Christ has accomplished for them that eternal salvation will surely receive much grace. Much grace. They will also experience much peace throughout this pilgrim life as they look to the God of all grace to sustain them and uplift them. And therefore, brethren, let us not be discouraged. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, well but let us recall what we have in Jesus Christ. And may these great gifts displayed by the triune God before us here in this text work their way into our soul work their way into our thoughts and give us great comfort as we work our way as God's people through this first letter of Peter. For in conclusion, we have the assurance of God's electing grace for us. We have the powerful working of the Spirit who is sanctifying us. We have His blood that has cleansed us. And therefore, by his grace, let us obey Jesus Christ from the heart. From the heart. As we consider this book in the days ahead, may God's mercy and peace be greatly multiplied. Let's, let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your mercy and grace this morning. We thank you for all that you've given us through your Son. We thank you for the work of your Spirit. We thank you for your foreordaining love. And we would ask, dear God, that as we begin this journey through the book of 1 Peter, through this wonderful epistle of God, that our hearts would be opened, that our thinking would be expanded and enlarged, and that we would certainly understand the blessings that God has given to us and that you have given to us through your Son. Bless us this morning. Seal these truths to our hearts. Prepare our hearts now as we come to the supper. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.